season of life and ministry coming off of Holy Week and Easter around here. Uh, personally, I really, really enjoyed our whole Easter series and found it to be helpful. I enjoyed our whole Easter season, to be honest. Uh, the 48-hour prayer time, the the community meal, the community day, all everything that went into it last Sunday, how good all of that was to uh, just to be together and celebrate. And, and in many ways, uh, this evening's time in the Word is a, is a continuation of what we've been talking about. It's meant to be a standalone kind of message coming off of Easter, but it really kind of fits in with the themes of what we've been looking at two weeks ago, of what it means to submit to Jesus as King. How, how do we submit our lives to Him? Last week, Mark talked about and challenged us with the question of, are we amazed with Jesus? Thinking of Peter peering into that tomb, the empty tomb, and he was amazed at what he saw. Are we amazed with Jesus? Um, I, I love Easter. I uh, have all my life, I have fond memories growing up. My, my family come from a, a family that um, really instilled church, the love of church in, in my life. And uh, so from a, from a very early age, I, my earliest memories, I remember that. But I also remember like eating lots of chocolate and sweets and all the, the eggs and all the things that come with that. And uh, But I remember getting dressed up as a kid. That was the cultural norm from where I'm from. Yeah, every Sunday, every Easter Sunday, that was what you did. Um, but I love how every year on that Sunday, Easter Sunday, there's this renewed sense of hope that you have, uh, that the church community has. As in, and our songs are filled with things of hope. Our sermons are filled with them. Everything about the aspect of worship is filled with hope. Uh, and even the, the season outside is, is better. The weather is better. The days are better. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that is, that is not a misplaced thing. Uh, if you follow Jesus, it is right and good for us to, to have this sense of hope and to, to have a sense of expectation. And that's really what our whole theme is about tonight, hope. Uh, the, the, the main thing that we're going to talk about tonight is what can be summed up in one sentence. What you hope for. Uh, is, is what you hope in is what you will live for. I'll say that again, sorry. What you and I hope in is what you and I will live for. The thing you value most, the thing your life most revolves around, that is what you and I are hoping for. And what a great time of year for us just to reassess this and to really recalibrate our lives as we think about the idea of hope. It's the next, it's the next natural Natural next step in our, in our series. If, if we've submitted to the king, if we are amazed with him, if we have come around to this idea of hope, then we need to think tonight that does my life reflect what I say I believe that I hope in. So let's look at our passage tonight because uh, it is right and good for us to look at God's word because it is the source that explains what hope actually is and what it should look like in our lives. And our passage this evening is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, but we're going to back all the way up to verse 3 to see how Peter gets to what he says in 13 to 16. So let's dive in to all that the Lord has for us this evening. Read along with me, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. And now here's what we're going to focus in tonight, these three verses. Therefore... With your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Man, thanks be to God for his word tonight. It is so good. Um, so rich. What you and I hope in is what you and I will live for. And our, our passage tells us that this focal point, that the, the sun that the planets of our lives revolve around should be hope in Jesus. Not just in a vague sense of, I hope that's going to happen. I hope Jesus is going to come back one day. I hope that what I believe is actually true. Not in a wishful kind of way, but in a firm reality that we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 3 literally told us a second ago that hope in Jesus is not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Not dead, but living. We sing that song around here often. Uh, and our hope isn't just rooted in something in the past. It's also firmly looking forward. While remaining rooted in the past, it looks forward to something that's ahead, that's to come. That we have a Savior who not only came to earth to conquer sin and purchase the debt that we owed, but he's also not going to leave this world as it is. He's not content to do that. Instead, he's going to come again. And that is our hope. He's coming again, and we will see him face to face with no veils, no walls, no separation. We will be there in his presence face to face. And that moment, when we see him face to face, that moment is the hope that Peter's talking about in this passage. So let's dig into this a bit tonight and, uh, and see all the implications that it has for us. Going back, we're going to start with those, first, those final three verses um, that we said we're going to emphasize. Verse 13, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have long been a fan of Lord of the Rings. Both the novels, the, the books, and the film ad adaptations both have their place. It's okay. Uh, we laughed this morning that there was, there was like simultaneously like, yes, followed by, 
uh, other half of the contingent was like, oh my goodness, Lord of the Rings. It was like both jubilance and just despair at the same time in the room. It's hilarious. Um, but nonetheless, I love Lord of the Rings. I, I love the stories. I love when you get to the end of one book. It leaves you on this cliffhanger that you, you, you have to get to the next book to see how the story is going to continue. Uh, but there's a moment in the final film, not the books, but in the films, where Aragorn, the king of men, has led the armies of men out to meet the, the darkest foe in all the world. And as they come to the gate, and they're standing there on the border of his territory, Aragorn turns and he recognizes that his men are just full of fear. They, they, the hope that they have within them is fading. They are fearful. They don't, there's doubt prevalent across the whole army, army. And so instantly he begins to speak up. And he gives this, this rallying cry and this speech that lifts their spirits, that renews their confidence, and they are ready to face the foe head on. I love this, this verse here in 1 Peter 1. And in a lot of ways, I feel like it's exactly what this passage is, a battle cry to steady the hearts of God's people as they live out lives that reflect the character of Christ in the world. But as we see from that very first word in verse 13, it's not an empty rah-rah speech. It's actually something that points back to all the things that we've just read from verse 3 onward. It's, it's rooted in, in all of that truth that's come before it. And, and the fact that Peter says that word there, therefore, tells us that we can't actually go on until we fully understand what he's saying in 3, especially 3 to 9, but 3 through 12. The, the fact that he says that tells us we have to go back and understand that. He, he points them to the fact that Jesus is actually risen. In our missional community on Thursday night, we were talking about, um, we, we were dialoguing about Mark's passage from last week that he preached uh, about the resurrection account. And, uh, and as we began to talk and make observations, somebody in the room, uh, and we asked the question, so what, what really first, before we kind of get through the nuts and bolts and kind of unpack it, what, was, what stood out to you? What was the biggest takeaway? And I, wouldn't, I mean, it was amazing. It was the most simple thing, but someone said, Jesus is actually alive. I was like, absolutely. That's so good. Wait, we gloss over that. It's our story. Every year we come across this story. Even throughout the year, we kind of come across this story. But that is true. Jesus is actually right now alive. He actually came out of the grave. And that is our hope tonight. That is exactly what we're talking about. Verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the res resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus already proved that he was victorious over sin and the grave. And we can trust that his sacrifice was sufficient and that his victory is firmly secure because of the resurrection. So the hope we have isn't just in a future thing or future event. It's actually in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. The object of our hope is Jesus. No other person has ever defeated death. Nobody has ever conquered the grave. Jesus has. And he offers the same victory to us. Even more, verse 4 tells us that our salvation isn't something that can be undone. It isn't, in, it isn't perishable. It doesn't grow weaker based on our circumstances or our actions or because we had a bad day. 
failure and struggling, entering into sin, doesn't affect the quality of our salvation. That's, that's what our, our, temp, our, our sinful flesh wants to tell us. It's what the enemy wants us to believe, that when I fall down, when I, stu- when I struggle, when I go through difficult seasons, when I'm unfaithful, it, it wants to tell me that it affects who I am in my, my relationship to God. But the surest thing we could ever know is the, uh, is salvation in Christ because, not because of us, but because of the one who ensures it. Verse 5 tells us that because it's God himself who's guarding this hope, there's absolutely no chance that our hope in the future won't come true. Because it's God who's guarding the hope, there's absolutely zero chance that our hope in the future won't come true. Verse 5 says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith, for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We enter into a relationship with God when we put faith in Jesus, you know, trusting that he died for our rebellion against God and then rose back to life. When we relent from our way and we submit to God's way, we no longer have anything to fear. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to feel guilt over because it is done. All of that wrath that we once were under was poured out upon Christ. The the penalty for our sin poured out upon Christ. And so now, instead of God looking at us and us being under his wrath, he now looks at us and he sees Christ. He sees the work of Christ applied to our life. We are pleasing and acceptable because of Christ. And we're being guarded by God through his spirit. I heard a, a sermon this week by a preacher and. I loved how he put this. He made this distinction. He says, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Do you believe that he rose again? That's great. Even the demons believe that. But do you consider the work of Jesus and the suffering on the cross to actually take the place of God's wrath for your sin? That's the difference. Is it this vague general thing of, yeah, I cognitively in my brain, there's mental assent to, yes, I believe that. But with your life, do you believe that Christ died because of your rebellion against God? That's the difference. Do you consider that his, the resurrection was proof of the victory that he had over sin in the grave, that his sacrifice was sufficient for you? That's the difference that we're talking about tonight. And that is what it means to put faith in Jesus, to reorient your life around the truth that, yes, Jesus paid the price for my rebellion, my, the separation that was between me and God. He, he was the bridge for, for me that I willfully chose to disobey and rebel against God. And, and this passage tells us that this is permanent. If we put faith in Jesus, if we've committed our lives to him, we can't lose this relationship. Sure, we can have strained relationship with God in our disobedience, But we can't, if if we continue to persevere, we know that we can't actually lose our relationship. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Peter continues in verses 6 to 7. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if, about you, but um, there, there are times when I get together with, with friends who 
where we lived life through one season many years ago. So whether school or university, many years ago, uh, and, and there are times when we get together, and we know when we get together, it's going to play out the same way that it always does, that we're going to recount the same old stories, that we're going to retell the same things, we're going to retell the same references that we used to tell, we're going to talk about the things we used to go through, and it's, it's not a lot of new information. It's always the old things. They keep coming back around. And, uh, and even though their lives have moved on, my life has moved on, and we all have kind of individually gone our own ways, the thing that, all, that linked us all together was that season of life that we lived together. And that's why we're always filled this pull to come back to those same old stories. Uh, but the Christian life isn't just about something that happened in the past. We, we talk a lot about the past a lot. We come together, we worship, our sermons are about stuff that happens in the past, but it's not just about the past. We have a future hope ahead of us because of what happened in the past. It's the fact that we will see Jesus again that actually enables us to endure the trials and the sufferings that we read about in verses 6 and 7. Even though we don't know the time or the day, we're sure that he is coming. And I feel like we say this a lot, but it's still worth repeating this evening that we can't make the mistake in believing that just because we found freedom in Christ, just because we now put faith in Jesus, that everything is going to be smooth sailing. That there'll be no massive waves to overcome, no bumps in the road, no difficult, hard seasons. We, in fact, we know that suffering is promised, is guaranteed. Every single writer in the New Testament references it at some point. Suffering is inevitable. Even though in our, our Western bent is to avoid suffering at all costs, that it is, it is the most repulsive thing, and I would be the first one on the list to say I don't like suffering at all. We know that that's still part of life, but the difference is we have hope in the midst of suffering. We have a God who promises presence with us in the midst of suffering. In the end, we endure those trials and that suffering because of the hope we have to look forward to. We, actually, we actively think in those moments now. We actually hold it in our heart that as we endure those seasons, yes, yes, I'm remembering the hope that is ahead. I'm remembering what is to come. It's the ultimate example of delayed gratification. Our, our culture values instant gratification. Um, all you have to do is flip on your phone, open your computer, go to amazon.co.uk, and uh, Amazon will deliver whatever you want. And you can choose whether it's in the next couple of days, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. I mean, if it's like food, it could be the same day. And if you really want to pay, it could be in two hours. You know, And so uh, we want instant gratification. That's, that's our whole bent. Uh, but that's not how it works with the, the Christian life. The hope we have in Christ is not about the right now. We look forward to what's to come. That looking forward becomes this fixed point in our future that anchors everything else. And that really propels us to what we see in verses 8 and 9 here. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Following Jesus is the sweetest experience that we can know here on this earth. Because Christ, there's, there's no one like him. There, there's no relationship more satisfying than walking with Christ. There is no person who is more worthy, more satisfying than being in proximity to 
Christ, knowing him, is the sweetest experience. And the more we grow to know him, the more, the deep, more deeply we understand that. These verses are describing the Jesus we long to see. And this is the one our hearts long for as we worship him, as we sing those songs like we just sang a moment ago. And our, our hearts are stirred, our affections are stirred for Christ. And all of that amazing truth is the backdrop of the context to what we see in verses 13 to 16. That's, that's the rally speech that Peter gives in 13 to 16. It's rooted in the truth that we just covered right there in those previous verses. So let's read this together one more time, verses 13 to 16. And if you would, would you read aloud with me? And let's read it together, starting in verse 13. It says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action... Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. What you and I hope in is what you and I will live for. The object of our hope affects how much we desire to follow Christ in obedience and life action. It will affect how passionate and devoted that we are for Christ. Where we anchor our hope influences whether or not we actually will follow through to share this hope with others around us and not just keep it to ourselves. To, to not only grow as a disciple, understanding who Christ is and now who we are as a result, but actually work to share that and influence others with that truth, to make other disciples. Peter writes, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. In, in the Greek, the language that this letter was first written in, Peter uses a word analogy here. In the, in the English, we just have straight up be ready for action. But it, Peter used a word analogy, and it's the picture of a man in Peter's day taking his robe, wrapping it into his belt, getting ready for some kind of strenuous activity like running or fighting or some, some kind of high-intensity activity. And what he's saying is here is in your minds, in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in the way that you view the world around you, there must be an intentionality by the follower of Jesus. Be ready for action. To be sober-minded, as the next phrase tells us. Meaning, not having any illusions about the reality of a given situation. We take on this mindset as we continually look to the hope that's before us. The moment that either Jesus returns or we die and we find ourselves standing before him in his presence. Either way, there's going to be this revelation of Christ in all of his glory. And the point of this verse is that this kind of thinking and this perspective, it doesn't just happen. It's not just something that happens to us. It has to be cultivated. There's this discipline associated with it. Author and theologian John Piper, he says this about how we apply this verse. We use our minds to stoke the fire of this full hope that Peter writes about. We use our minds to stoke the fire of this full hope. I love that. But what in the world does that look like on a practical daily? I'm, pretty, I'm a practical person. I love to know how to work things out and not just theory, but in the day-to-day, -day, what does that look like? How do you use your mind to stoke the fire of, of, of seeing Christ? How do you develop that? 
Well, it's just like anything else. You take it day by day. You take it one step at a time. You grow little by little in this activity. You, you, uh, you actively remind your heart of the hope that's ahead of us. In his book, uh, On the Blood of Jesus, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, remember Jesus till, you're, till you feel that he is with you, till his joy gets into your soul and your joy is full. Remember him till you begin to forget yourself, your temptations, and your cares. Remember him till you begin to think of the time when he will remember you and come in his glory for you. Remember him till you begin to be like him. A significant way that we remember Jesus and we stoke this, this flame in our minds is being committed to being disciplined enough to spend time in God's word and in prayer. And when I say that, I'm not talking about remembering to be in the Word or in prayer like every other week or every occasionally, as every so often. I'm talking about regular, day in, day out. It's part of my daily, actual, throughout the day routine. It's the norm of my life. And as I say that, I'm fully aware that this isn't a process that's always easy. Uh, I understand that it can be difficult, especially as we think about our schedules and our demands. And that's why I use the word discipline related to this. It takes going about this not in isolation, but in community. Back at the beginning of the, of the year, uh, our church, we, we submitted for everyone to, to use the, the version Bible app, which has been around for a long time. But we said, hey, let's give this a go together as a community. Uh, and we pointed you to two specific Bible reading plans as, as options that would take you through the Bible in a whole year. And we're just over 100 days into that. And it has been so encouraging to be a part of that process. My heart has been so encouraged every time I see alerts on my phone. And I, and I get those, those little dings, and it pops up, and, and I open it up, and it says things like, Johnny Palmer or Mark Morris has completed day whatever of the, the Bible Project reading plan. Or when I see that day after day, Elisa or Callum or Jeremy or Samuel or Abigail are highlighting verse after verse, and, and it's encouraging me to see that they're, what they're reading, and not just reading, but highlighting. Or when I see Karen or Pauline or Claire share those Bible images with the scripture on them, and, and it, it makes me go back and, and pray and spend time meditating on the verses that they have there. And for those of us who had the privilege of, of seeing those same alerts, I know that you'll agree with me that, that it's been incredibly encouraging. In fact, it's it spurred me on and makes me want to read even more. So if you haven't taken the opportunity to get in on reading the Word in one of those plans, it's not too late. I know we're 100 days in the year. That's okay. Dive into where we are. Start at the beginning even now. Either way, talk to me later uh, tonight or, or during the week, and, and we can uh, help you connect to one of those plans. Uh, to be clear, this is not about the elders lording this over our, our church community. This is not about us wanting to check in on you to see how you're getting on and whether or not you're actually reading the Bible or not. It's actually about us cultivating this, this, this atmosphere of accountability where we all are encouraged by the Word. We're all edified by the Word. We're all changed because of we're putting it in our hearts and our minds continually. And that's what begins to then come out in our day-to-day interactions with others. It comes out in how we pray and how we talk, how we speak. It, it affects our thought patterns and our attitudes. Being in the Word and in prayer is meant to be a communal work. Don't, don't get me wrong. You actually have to do the work yourself, but you're not meant to do it in isolation. You do it together in community, and, and that makes it even sweeter 
And one final thing on this. I have served, um, believe this or not, I have served in full-time ministry for 25 years. I'm right at the 25-year mark. And yes, I started when I was 12. Uh, In that time, I have heard a lot of excuses for why people just don't have the time to do it or why they just don't have the ability to be in the Word. Um, But spending time in God's Word is something that when we prioritize it, we find room for it in our day. We find room in our life for this. The things we love, we find room in our schedule for. Most apps now even have an audio feature. So, I mean, it could be that you spend time throughout the day on your commute, on your walk, on while you're doing the laundry, what, whatever it is, folding, cleaning up after dinner, whatever it is, you could be listening. It might mean waking up a few minutes earlier than you want to wake up. It might mean staying up a little later than you want to stay. But there's room in your day if you go about and are disciplined to make that. There's creative ways as well. But what helps us in this is another phrase that Peter uses here in verse 13 about looking to Christ. He says, set your hope completely. What he's referring to is is an active waiting. It's not a passive thing. It's not a wishful thinking, but there's an expectation that this is reality. Set your hope completely, that it is reality. It's done. It's it's total unified wholeness where there's no lacking. So, So as you look forward to seeing Christ in your heart and your mind, in your mindset, in your, re- in your worldview, there's this totality that your every expectation is that you will actually see Christ. There's not a doubt, that, but it's firm. I am going to see Christ. And that, cemented in our forefront of our minds and our focus, affects our lives. It affects how we live. And Christ promised this, that he would come again. The Apostle Paul writes about it, about this promise that should we die on earth before that day, that we will see Christ again. He, he writes that there's a promise that when we are away from the body, we'll be at home with the Lord. I remember hearing former pastors quote this verse as a kid, uh, and they would always use the King James and, and put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I, I love that, that If we have the hope of the promise of seeing Christ as the absolute center of our focus, then we will determine in our hearts to build up that hope in our hearts by spending time in his word, by spending time in prayer. Let's move on to verse 14. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Here is is one of the greatest stumbling blocks to keeping this amazing hope at the forefront of of our gaze of our life. Do not go back to the way things used to be. Christ purchased you, and he set you free from the bondage of sin. Don't go back. You're not a slave anymore to those old things. He purchased that sin. He set you free from that sin. So if you find that that's where you are, know that you don't have to stay there. No matter what temptation says, no matter what your flesh says, no matter what the enemy says, you don't actually have to stay there. There is power to change, not in yourself, but through Christ, through his spirit in you. You have that ability. So live in the freedom that Christ has given you. Dive into his word. Share your struggles with a brother or sister. Don't keep it to yourself. Live life with the body of Christ. See, before Christ, we didn't know. This says we were ignorant We didn't know that we could be free. 
We didn't know the truth that we could live with hope. But now, when we, when we go back to those old ways, what we're, we're living as if we didn't know while knowing the truth. Peter writes here that we, we should be like children, not, not just, not just uh, informed, but that actually we should be like children. And the, and the gist of what he's saying is that we should live like dependents upon the Lord. Uh, this morning, it was fun to see a, a, a couple of families who had very young babies in the room and, uh, and how they would care for them and how they would feed them and look after them. And, and, uh, and Paul and Rebecca, it hasn't been that long ago that, that you guys had Eleanor. And she's getting a, a little older now and can do a few things. But it wasn't long ago that she was completely dependent upon you guys. And so as you think about a newborn child, what can they actually do for themselves? Nothing. They can't feed themselves. Can't, can't clean themselves as much as a parent would love for them to, to clean themselves. There's not really anything they can do for themselves. They're completely reliant upon their parents or family members. Uh, it, it, if, if you have a small child, you, you, you really you will understand that. Or if you've been around a small child, you'll understand that there's, there's nothing they can actually do. And that's what it should be like for us as followers of Jesus. We should be obedient to God totally in submission to him, not because we choose to give up control, but because we understand and we, we realize the truth that we have no control. We actually are totally dependent upon God, and we embrace that. Instead of resisting that, we lean into it, and we delight in that because we realize the truth that we're absolutely powerless in our lives to do anything apart from him helping us. And that should bring a sense of freedom today because this passage isn't suggesting that we work harder to be like Christ. It's, it's, it's not meant to add a burden to your life. That's not at all what Christ wants for you. He didn't go to the cross so you could try harder or work harder or just want to earn something else. No, he went to the cross to do the hard work on your behalf. This verse is all about realizing on a deeper level that there is nothing that we can do apart from the work of God to be like Christ. So, I should not and I cannot view my spending time with God as more work that I do. Instead, the truth about God, about who God is, means that my spending time with God is because of how reliant I am upon Him. So whether we like it or not, we need the Spirit of God within us to help us, to, to keep that hope at the center of all that we have our gaze there. Let's look at the final two verses of our passage this evening. It says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. It's a really good thing we had verse 14 before we got to <laughs> that statement. Otherwise, we'd be really tempted just to try really hard to be holy. And that word holy is, is really interesting. Um, it, it, the word holy is, is, is to be separate. We use that word for God because we really don't have another word we can use for God. It means to be, he's, he's totally unique. He's holy. He's other from us. He's a holy. He's separate from us. He's, he's holy. Everything that makes him who he is, completely different from us, he's holy. He's unique in that way. He's totally other. And in his, his total otherness from us, all those qualities that make God who he is require that we use the word holy. So what God is calling us to do is to be separate for him. He's calling us to be separate for him. That's because he wants to make us more and more like himself. Here's what these two verses don't mean. 
The striving toward holiness is not about being good enough to stay in favor with God. It's a follower of Jesus. Christ purchased that position for you. It's not something you can earn more of or something that can be diminished. It was a perfect purchase on your behalf. Second, this is not about performing. I say this to the Christian and non-Christian alike, that you can't earn the favor of God. No matter how much you want to, God doesn't love you more or less based on how many good works you do in this life. So follower of Jesus, tonight I just want to remind you that God has an infinite amount of love for you. Think about that, that word infinite. That's his love, unending God has an infinite measure of love for you. What you do doesn't affect the quantity of love that he has for you because he's already demonstrated that love for you. Christ already purchased God's favor for you, so don't fall into the trap of thinking you have to continually earn the love of God. Now life is about delighting in God and his love about naturally wanting to be like what you value most. And that's the whole point of this passage. You, you will become like the things or the people you revolve your life around. Being holy like God is holy comes about by letting your life revolve around your relationship with God, not segmenting it so that you have this one little slice of your life that's your God slice, but your whole life revolves around your relationship with God. And that comes through continued long-term proximity to Christ on a daily basis. Close tonight just by asking a question. Are you hoping in Christ? Is Christ at the center? Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as the way to have a relationship with God. Well, the Bible tells us that every single one of us is separated from God. That each of us has willfully and freely chosen to disobey God, to rebel against him, to go against his way, and to go our own way. And what that has bought us is eternal separation from God, to be under his wrath. But in his mercy, he has sent Christ to live a life that we could not live, to, to die a death in our place, to take the punishment of that rebellion, so that if we will trust that in such a way as to orient our life around that, we can be made right with him. If you have questions about that this evening, I would love to chat about that. If, if you're watching this evening and have questions about that, please get in contact. We would love to talk more with you about that. Don't let today pass without us talking about you have, making action on that, that sense you have, that tug in your heart that you have. Christian, is Christ the center of your hope? Have things in the world drifted to the forefront, or is that hope at the forefront? Puritan preacher John Bunyan, who was no stranger to suffering, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison and, uh, and really struggled while he was in prison because of the poverty his wife and family lived in and he wasn't able to provide for them. He wrote this. He says, as your faith is, such your hope will be. Hope is never ill when faith is well, nor strong if faith be weak. How do you cultivate hope? You continually remind yourself of the truth by going to the source, God's word. This will cause you to have a hope that is well and strong. What you hope in is what you will live for.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you that you have given us a living hope in a person, in Jesus Christ, who not only was in the past, uh, and we not only have a hope that's in the past, but a hope that it rooted in the past is something we can look forward to in the future. Lord, may that continually be at the forefront of our gaze. Keep our focus and our attention upon the hope that is to come. And may that affect our lives so that we live out lives that reflect the love of Christ to those we encounter, that affects our speech and how we speak to others, how we pray for others, how we engage. May we look more and more like Christ because of the hope that is at the forefront of our lives. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.